Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Another interesting night under the shield. And by interesting, I mean actually infuriating. Because while there was a lot of football in that football game last night, unfortunately, there was just as much of the refs. The ref show. We talked about the ref show yesterday. I tweeted last night, the ref show is the worst show. And there was a ton of that, right? So what you had was a night of football. And there was some good football. There was. But what you had was an all-time great night for anybody who tuned in just to watch the refs. The non-existent audience had the time of their non-existent lives if that's what they tuned in for. For the rest of us, it was mostly just excruciating. And I'm not about that. Like, I'm not about rolling in here just to hammer on the refs. I don't want to do that. It's the last thing I want to do. However, they don't leave me much choice, do they? Because after a bullcrap roughing the passer call on Bacon 45 on Sunday, which dominated the headlines, there was another bullcrap roughing the passer call, which dominated the headlines once again. Shotgun snap, dropping back, moves up, hit as he throws, down he goes, and he was brought down and sacked by Chris Jones. Flag thrown on the play, back at the 38, the sack came at the 42, it's a loss of four right now. It's going to get called for one here. I have a feeling it's going to be landing on top of the quarterback. Ah. Personal foul, roughing the passer, number 97, defense. 15-yard penalty, automatic first down. Chris Jones, as he was going for the sack, his entire body weight lands on Derek Carr. Really absolutely nothing he can do. Andy Reid is furious. I've never seen Big Red so furious. You know, saying something, much to the chagrin of James Kelly, saying something is ass is not a take, but that's ass. That's historic ass. And why do I say that? Serial Because there may have been some NFL history in that. Because that was the first time, in my estimation, that a player has ever roughed the passer while holding on to the football. Chris Jones stripped Derek Carr before he even knocked him over. Then the replays definitely made it look like he did not actually land with the full body weight on Carr. Even though that was referee... Carl Jeffers excuse after the game in other words it wasn't just a clean play it was an unbelievably clean play which is probably why everybody immediately lost their collective bleep as I mentioned that was the most red assed I have ever seen one Andrew Reed all of Arrowhead lost its bleep. Judging by Twitter, and you never want to judge things by Twitter, but judging by Twitter, most of America lost its bleep. So per usual, is that just bad officiating or are those just bad rules? Bad officiating or a bad rule? And as always, the answer is yes. Chris Jones, of course, was asked about it after the game, and I thought he had a pretty interesting response to the question. There's no need for an explanation, okay? So uh, what I'm going to go up to him and say, how should I tackle? 
How should I not roll on him? I'm trying my best. I'm 340, 25 pounds, okay? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I'm, I'm running full speed trying to get the quarterback. I hit the ball. What do you want me to do? I brace my, my hands. So I think it's now it's like taking the initiative to uh, extend to look at roughing the passers now as a league, you know, like they did pass interference uh, a couple years back, where we can view the pass interference. I think that's now the, the next level we're going to have to take as a league. So almost all of that sounds pretty reasonable, right? I do love the response. Quote, I'm trying my best here. What do you want me to do? I'm trying my best. I'm I'm 325 pounds. I'm trying my best. I'm 300. I mean, what do you want me to do? I'm 325. I'm bracing for the fall. I'm trying my best. All right. But then that part about, well, why don't we just make it reviewable? You know, it seems pretty logical, right? But it's kind of flawed. There's a reason why PI, pass interference, is no longer reviewable. It's because the refs F that up too. Of course it makes sense to review these plays. And of course it wouldn't make any difference at all. Thankfully, at least, that call did not end up ruining the game. Well, I guess depending on what game you're watching, it may have. The other horrendous call last night didn't help matters either. Because the ref show's encore was to call a devastating defensive holding call against the Raiders on a fourth quarter Kansas City field goal attempt. That's a flag you basically never, ever, ever see. Let me repeat that. Defensive holding on a field goal attempt. When was the last time you ever saw that? When have you ever seen that? Has that ever happened? And of course, that flag led to a fourth Travis Kelsey TD. And a seven-point lead that wound up being enough for Mahomes, Mahomes? and the Chiefs. Chiefs. You heard me correctly. Travis Kelsey scored four TDs last night. And thanks to the ref show, it basically took me a half of a segment to get there. Talk about burying the lead. Except that wasn't the lead. The ref show was the lead, unfortunately. And I want to make this very clear. It's, it's so convenient, and it's such low-hanging fruit. And believe me, I didn't think to myself, you know what I'll do? I'm just going to come in here and just crack on the refs all day. I don't want to do that. I really don't. But again, they left me no choice. So it took me half of this open to get to a guy who scored four touchdowns. I haven't even gotten to Devontae Adams yet. Well, now I have. Unfortunately, now I have to talk about Devontae Adams. I say unfortunately because I don't mean that amazing fourth quarter TD catch he made to make it a one-point game or the critical overturned third and one sideline bobble that pretty much decided the game, almost came down with it. I'm talking about Adams lowering the boom after the game on some dude holding a boom or a camera stand. It was hard to tell. I just know that dude got trucked. Some innocent stadium worker shoved to the ground by Devontae as he was walking off the field. And then social media went from raging about the ref show to raging about the ref show and the shove. Now, to Adam's credit, I guess, he immediately apologized. Although I've got to say the apology tweet was kind of funny in and of itself. Quote, He said, quote, sorry to the guy I pushed over after the game. 
obviously very frustrated at the way the game ended. And when he ran in front of me as I exited, that was my reaction. And I felt horrible immediately. That's not me. My apologies, man. Hope you see this. Oh, he saw it all right. He just didn't give a damn. Hope you see this. That's not exactly going to bail Devontae out of a fine and maybe even a suspension and maybe, yes, legal action from the dude that he smoked. So I, I don't think him, quote, seeing this is going to help. Aside from all, my bad, aside from all the antics, there was a lot of game to that game last night. Like I said, off the top, unfortunately, a lot of it was way too familiar for Raider fan. I mean, how good were things looking when you're up 17-0? It was almost like you could hear the autumn wind building under the broadcast. Like you could already hear Raider Mike's call today, spiking the ball on Chiefs fans' face. And you, know- you could almost see my man Josh McDaniels. And I do love Josh. You can almost see him channeling his inner chunk Gruden and doing a victory lap in the bus around Arrowhead. It was all coming into focus. The Raiders that had had such a tough start to their year were going to have it all come together at Arrowhead. They were going to make it right. Who would have ever thought that there'd be a get-right game at Arrowhead in prime time on Monday? But they're up 17-0. Then it all started. Huh? You did not, Alvin. Yeah, I know I said 17, Alvin. Alvin's got the worst case of jungle Tourette's. When I said you did not, Alvin, he said, dude, you said 17. Yeah, I know. That was the score, Alvin. 17 nothing. That's why I said 17. Did you pour some sugar on that? I said 17 because that was the score, dude. So what is the fastest ball sport in the world? Not baseball, not tennis. In fact, it is the sport of high lie, spelled J-A-I-A-L-A-I, originating in the Basque region of Spain and played professionally in the U.S., most notably in the 1980s. Highly is making an unprecedented comeback. The ball reaches speeds of 150 miles per hour. The action is intense. The danger factor is high. Six-person teams of professional athletes play the sport at the Magic City Fronten in Miami, Florida. I invite you to check out all the action Monday and Tuesday at 5 p.m. and Friday night at 7 p.m. Go to HighLightWorld.com or download the free Highlight app in the App Store. The sport with its intensity and athleticism is well worth watching. Check out all the action at HighlightWorld.com. Matches are played similar to tennis with a player or team required to win two sets to win a match. Each set is played up to six points. It is a sport you need to check out. HighlightWorld.com. Monday and Tuesday at 5 p.m., Friday at 7 p.m. Wow. Anyway, Kansas City... Opens the second half with three straight TD drives. And the Raiders needed a big-time play to stay in it. And would you get a big-time play from a big-time wideout? Shotgun snap. Has time. Right tackle block. Moves up. Those long. Arching pass. Down the middle. Over the shoulder. Catch. Goal line. Touchdown. Adams caught it. Double teamed. <clears throat> with defenders draped on both shoulders. 
Devontae Adams with a 48-yard touchdown reception. And the Raiders to within an extra point of tie in the game late in the fourth quarter. Westwood won. Big-time throw, big-time catch, big-time play. Of course, Raider fan only got to ride that high for about 90 seconds until that high was replaced by the low of missing the two-point conversion for the lead. Now, I'm not going to kill my guy Josh McDaniels for that call. He had a play he liked, and according to Josh Jacobs, who was running wild all night long, it was exactly what that team wanted in that spot. And they gave the ball back anyway, which gave the Raiders a chance for the win. Or the most Raider ending ever. They got the ball back. They had a shot. It could have still ended well. They could have still shocked the world, but that's not the Raider way. Instead, the way that game ended was the epitome of the Raider way. I hate to say that, too. Again, I was hyping them hard, hard before the start of the year. I love what they did in the offseason. I love the hiring of Josh McDaniels. I loved everything I was seeing. So believe me when I tell you, Raider fan, I take no pleasure in this. But that was one of the most Raider things ever, the way that game ended. You know I'm right, Raider fan. I'm not looking to start anything with you, Raider fan, but you know I'm not wrong. If you don't want to say that I'm right, you do have to say, you know I'm not wrong. When two dudes run into each other on the final play of an upset bid in Arrowhead, that is extremely on brand. The blitz is on, Carr throws an arching pass, the receiver's down, the pass flutters incomplete, no yellow on the field, no flag, and on downs, the Chiefs are going to get it. Both of his receivers were on the ground, but they actually tripped over each other. You thought maybe it was the defensive backs and there was contact, but it was his two receivers got their feet caught up. Both of them go to the turf as the ball's spiraling through the air. Oh, there definitely should have been a flag because my man did not turn around and look to locate the ball, and there was contact before the ball got there. Of course, it involved two Raiders. That was, unfortunately, the best Raider hit of the night. Unfortunately, well, the second best hit. The best hit was Devontae Adams trucking that cameraman. The second best hit involved two Raiders on that play. The second best hit, unfortunately, was Renfro wiping out Adams. So Adams was actually on both ends of the best hits of the night. He delivered the best hit of the night, and he was on the receiving end of the second best hit of the night. And that there drops Vegas to a brutal, brutal one in four. I mean, one thing to be one in four, but entirely another to be one in four with all four of those losses being decided by one score or less. Four losses by a combined total of 14 points. So, Raider fan, brutal for you. Y'all deserve better. And in fact, the rest of us all deserve better than the damn ref show. Man, I hope that's the end of the ref show. I'm tired of talking about the ref show. The ref show is the worst show. There is the ref show, and then there's Renfro. My man Renfro, 
as professional as he is, has not exactly been a closer the last two games. Last time we saw him, he was gifting the cards a win when he put the ball right onto the ground. And in terms of that flag, I mean, the ref show could not wait to throw flags last night. How do they keep their flag in their pocket at the end of that game? Why was there no flag thrown then? You saw the contact. As I mentioned, he did not even turn to locate the ball. He just blew up the receiver. Of course, it was a teammate of his. You know the Lakers used to sit Shaq at the end of games to prevent the hack-a-shack because he could not be depended upon to hit a free throw if his life depended on it. Remember that? I hate to say it, but because I like this guy, but at the end of games, the Raiders should sit, blunder, ren, blow. Two receivers got their feet caught up. Because either he's going to put it on the ground or he's going to smash into his own teammate and blow the play up. Devontae's like, damn, they can lay the lumber. Oh, that was you, Renfro. So I've got a quick question for you. Do you feel like your antiperspirant keeps you dry all day long? Dove Men Plus Care Dry Spray has an instantly drying antiperspirant formula that can help give you a cleaner feel and offers 48-hour sweat and odor protection. I said it, 48 hours. It's incredible. And on top of that, Dove Men Dry Spray feels light, and it's clean on your skin, and it's quick, and it's easy to use, especially when you are on the go. And... Dove Men Dry Spray contains Dove's unique one-quarter moisturizing cream that helps to protect your skin. You know, you got to have that. You have to moisturize. It leaves your skin feeling comfortable, and it helps to protect your skin as well. Truly, take advantage of that. You've got to moisturize. Try Dove Men Dry Spray. Goes on dry, clean feel all day. Eli Manning. Eli, it's good to have you on the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you on, Eli. So before we talk about Quaker, I want to ask you about the Giants. They are one of the best stories in the NFL right now. They're one of the biggest surprises of the entire season at 4-1. and one. I'm curious, what impresses you the most about what you've seen from the G-Men so far? You know, I think just their ability to, to play their best football at the end of games. And they've, uh, they've done a great job just you know, not forcing things. It hasn't always been pretty early on in games, but they haven't made bad decisions. They haven't turned the ball over. They haven't put her, put themselves in a bad situation and kept games close. And they've, they've really just rallied in the second half, especially in the fourth quarter, scoring points off it, offensively, getting stops defensively, and just coming in together and playing great team football and getting those wins. Eli Manning joining us. Eli, so the team did not pick up Daniel Jones' rookie option, so they do have a decision to make about him in the offseason. Do you think his future is in New York, or do you think it's someplace else? Well, I've always I've always uh, been on Daniel's side. Uh, I think he's he's a guy who um, you know he loves what he's doing and he loves playing quarterback for the New York Giants. He works extremely hard at it. He's tough. He's a great teammate, and I think he's playing his best football right now. And he's uh, you know and it has it's not easy for him. It's not like he's got 
guys you know running wide open and receivers that are just winning one-on-one matches matchups he's having to really make good decisions and because of that he's not forcing it it, it allows that offensive coordinator uh to keep calling aggressive plays and call play actions and bootlegs and put him in a position where he can throw it he can run it and uh he just continues to you know make those good decisions and and, and plays his best football in the fourth quarter eli manning is joining us eli it's fun now man it's a lot of fun the giants are a lot of fun right now i'm curious though what was it like the last couple of years for you to watch that team struggle the way it did i'm guessing that was not as fun no, it's, it's never as fun just because also you, you know the players, you know the coaches, you know the ownership, and, and so many people in the building that work so hard, and you want them to do well. So you're rooting for the players more than you're just rooting for the team. And, uh, you know, seeing Saquon and his injuries and what he was dealing with and Sterling Shepard with his injuries and even him dealing with another one this year, and Daniel and what he was going through. So um, it, this is exciting. I was at the game yesterday. Uh, in London, got the root for them and be around that. And so just uh, happy, happy to see them winning. Um, and for those players, the coaches, ownership, everybody involved and for the fan base, um, it's uh, it's a good feeling. I was going to ask you, I know you were there. How did that trip treat you? It seems to me also I've made that trip. That is not an easy trip to make just in and of itself. It's an amazing place to go. It's a great experience. If you're going to go, you certainly want to win. And they did. How did the trip to London treat you personally? We had a great time. I brought I brought my three girls uh, with me, my wife. So we went and kind of had a long weekend there and, and enjoyed some of the sights and, and going to the game. And it's amazing how just the experience has changed uh, uh, on game day. And I you know I went there and played in the first game ever, 2007 against the Dolphins, and to this game now. That first game. You know, the fans didn't know when to cheer. They kind of liked the punts. There's a little fight. They cheered during that. But, you know, they didn't cheer on first downs. Like a third and two, and you run it for two yards. I mean, it was crickets. I mean, they, they were not – there was no cheering for a first down. That was like, oh, that's just a boring run play. And so, um, you know, this game, it was the chance. It was the cheers at the right time. Everybody knows – what's going on, understanding the game more. So it, it was a great atmosphere, and, and we had a great a great time. Eli Manning joining us. Eli, you know this as well as anybody now because you're on the other side. Content is king. Content is king, and never more so than right now. I've got to ask, whose idea was the Manning cast, and how much fun are you having doing that with your brother? You know, I think the idea came around uh, just, just because – um, you know, of, of the COVID year, uh, I did some of these, you know, kind of zoom in broadcasts for the Super Bowl. Peyton did one for the college football national championship game when no one was at the games. And, and you know, we both kind of afterwards said, you know, that was that was, you know, could be an idea. It just wasn't done very well. And and so we said, you know, both of us never really wanted to get into the actual broadcasting because of all the travel. We said maybe we could do it this way. And and make it a little bit more exciting, more like, hey, me and you on the couch, telling stories, talking ball at times, but not always keeping it everything about football, um, but always a critical moment is getting it back to it. And so, you know, he he kind of, you know, I, I was think was more the mastermind of it than, than me, but, um, you know, was happy happy uh, when we did some of the test runs and, and thought it could be a great idea and we could have some fun doing it, which uh, which we are. It is fun. It's a blast. Now, you're appearing courtesy of Quaker. I'm going to ask you about that one second. One more thought, though. The Rams, Eli, I want your thoughts on this because you know, you know how it is. You've won a couple of Super Bowls. You know what it's like the year after. There's that proverbial Super Bowl hangover. When you look at the Rams right now, is that what you see or are they 
they struggling for other reasons? Yeah, I don't see it as a hangover. I just think they've, uh, you know, they lost a couple, uh, you know, key key players at key positions. I feel, you know, and then uh, tons of injuries this year on the offensive line. So you have a, you know, an older quarterback with an offensive line that's banged up. Um, you know, they lost Odell, which is a big part, you know, last year in the second half of the season with him. Allen Robinson hasn't quite taken over that spot. I think he's a good player. They're just not, you know, finding out how best to use him. And so they're just they're struggling uh, from the offensive standpoint to give Stafford enough time to make some plays and to get the run game going. And so um, I, I can just happen in football. Nothing, nothing carries over. There's no automatic carryover from season to season. And, you know, it's never going to be as easy. It's going to be harder every time. And so, um, you know, you feel for him. I feel for, for, for Matthew, I feel for the coach and what they're going through because they have a lot of great players and, in good scheme, they're just not, you know, quite able to get to everything they want to do. All right. So as we mentioned off the very top, you're working with Quaker. What are you doing with the folks there? Well, excited to partner with Quaker. One, I'm a huge oatmeal fan. And so, you know, basically had oatmeal every morning for the last 15 years, including this morning. But also, uh, like me, Quaker believes that the circumstances of life should never be a barrier to good nutrition. And uh, part of the problem in the U.S. is, you know, the hunger and, you know, people out there that are hungry. And so a part of that commitment to help advance food security in the U.S., Quaker is introducing the Quaker Hunger Clock in partnership with Feeding America. And their goal is to raise $500,000, which is equivalent to funding 5 million meals for Feeding America. And they want to do it by Super Bowl 57. So there's an actual clock there in Arizona across from the stadium where the Super Bowl will be played. And it's counting down the minutes until until the game and also counting up the number of meals that it's raising through the donations. So you can go to QuakerHungerClock.com and find more information and also learn how to donate to this great initiative. Perfect. Quick follow. If you've had oatmeal every day for the last 15 years, Eli, do you, do you hit that with fruit? Do you hit that with brown sugar? Do you hit that with nuts? How do you do that? I'm a fruit. I'm a fruit. So this morning was blueberries and some strawberries, uh, but also always have, you know, blackberries and raspberries. So definitely throw some fruit in there. And, and uh, you know, it's a good way to start the day. Yeah, it is. I had to find out. I'm a blueberry guy myself. He is a two-time Super Bowl champ, two-time Super Bowl MVP, and appeared courtesy of Quaker and the Quaker Hunger Clock. Eli, I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Jim. Be well, pal. Have you ever experienced the flavor of actual live fire cooking? We're not talking about a fire pit in the backyard. This is about the big green egg, the ultimate cooking experience. An egg is the most versatile grill you will ever own. You can grill, roast, smoke, sear, and even bake. No joke. Try a pizza on the egg. It is incredible. Stop wasting money on grills that you replace every few years. We've all been there and done that. Forget the pellets and the knockoffs too. Listen to me. Roll with an authentic big green egg, a ceramic marvel backed by a lifetime warranty. It is simple to light, easy to use, and it works without a power source. There's no need to plug it in. With the playoffs and holidays approaching, you cannot beat a smoked turkey on an egg. It also makes an amazing gift, and they have two models that are perfect for tailgating. The best part is you can have it delivered to your house for free from a local dealer in your community. You heard me. 
Shop online at BigGreenEgg.com and have it sent to your house for free. That's BigGreenEgg.com, and you will thank me later. So Carson Wentz seemingly has an impact on those around him. Everywhere he goes, he makes an impact on people. It seems like the more they're around him, the less they want to be around him. You feel me? I've got a feeling after wearing out his welcome in Indy, after wearing out his welcome in Philly before that, he's doing the exact same thing now in the district, only faster because the vibes I'm picking up on do not seem to be positive. I say that because it was not that long ago that Commander's head coach Ron Rivera was pushing back on what he felt was false and unfair narratives about Wentz. You know, all those things that we always hear about Wentz, that he's not a good leader, that he's not the best teammate, that he can't throw the ball accurately, consistently. You know, the very things that got him run out of Philly. You know, the very things that got him run out of Indy. You know, the very things they still say about him in Indy, even though he's no longer in Indy. Ron Rivera was pushing back on all of that, and he had his quarterbacks back. Apparently, not any longer. Not after seeing Wentz go Wentz at the worst possible time, in the worst possible place on the field, dropping his team to one and four. Apparently, my man Ron has already had enough of the Wentz experience. Check out Ron Rivera's response yesterday to being asked why his team is the only team struggling in the NFC East right now. The Giants... You know, they're up to a faster start. The Eagles, the Cowboys, you know, they've kind of all been rebuilding too the last couple of years, and it seems like they're farther ahead. Why do you think the teams in the division are farther ahead at this point? Quarterback. I mean, damn, Riverboat. Tell the world what you really think. Straight up, quarterback. Quarterback. I mean, that is cold. That is as hilarious as it is cold. The only thing that would have made that better is if he had just come right out and said it, matter-of-factly. And he said that a very matter-of-factly, quarterback. And this reporter's kind of stumbling around a little bit like, well, you know, these other teams, they have things they had to work on. They're rebuilding. They have some other issues. They, They all seem to be doing pretty well. What's your problem, quarterback? Quarterback. The only thing that would have made that better is if he had just come right out and said, Carson Wentz. For those of you in the back of the room, let me say it again, only louder this time. Carson Wentz holds up a picture of him. This guy. Oh, am I speaking too quickly? Sorry. Carson Wentz, anybody need me to spell that? W-E-N-T-Z. Get that? Get that? Or do you need me to do that again? A-S-S. Now, of course, he tried to soften that blow. He tried to kind of walk it back by saying other teams have more continuity And that he has, quote, no regrets, end of quote, about bringing Wentz in. Truth is, it didn't really matter what he said after he said what he said, because there's no way you're going to unring that bell. 
Apparently, another team has already moved on from Wentz. They just haven't told him yet. I mean, I'm not even saying it's your fault. He is your quarterback, Ron. Quarterback. But listen to what you're saying because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. First off, while the NFC East is no longer the NFC least, when you tried to walk that back by saying that the other teams also have greater quarterback continuity than you do, what are we talking about here? Like, we're not talking about a division that has the likes of Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, and Russ Wilson. Wait, did I say Russ? Excuse me, my bad, bad. Bronco fan. My bad. I got the scores right. My bad. No, the slingers of the NFC East that you're comparing your guy to are Jalen Hurts, Daniel Dimes, and Cooper Rush. Jalen Hurts, Danny Dimes, and Cooper Rush. So exactly what continuity are we talking about here? Dimes has a first-year head coach. Cooper Rush is a backup who was released by the Cowboys in August. So it's not like they built a system around him or surrounded him with Neil Pert or Getty Lee. And there were still all sorts of questions about Jalen Hurts coming into this season. So whatever you're trying to provide for Wentz that you probably don't meet anyway, it's just bullcrap, right? I mean, yes, Jalen's balling. But you're defending a guy who is half the player right now that either Daniel Dimes or Cooper Rush are and saying it's because of a lack of continuity. My man, Ron, as much as I like and respect you and your football acumen, and even more importantly, you as a human being, I do have to say, man, you got to get the hell out of here with that. And besides, who didn't see this coming? How could anybody have expected any different from Carson Wentz? This is who this guy is. This is who this guy's been for a long time. A turnover machine. Of course he's among the league leaders in INTs. And no, I get he's not their only problem. I understand this. He's not their only problem. Far from it. However, when asked why everybody else in that division was doing so well and his team was doing so crappy, Ron Rivera did not say, well... It's a multitude of things. Our line, our running backs, our secondary. Now, he didn't say any of that. He went right with the one word that he had locked and loaded because he knew the question was coming, and he said, quarterback. Quarterback. That's what you signed up for when you brought this guy in. So don't be surprised when this guy gets up under center and starts to throw the ball to the opposing team and makes soul-crushing decisions with the ball in his hands at the end of games. He's Carson Wentz. That's who he is. That's what he does. And right now, he's looking up at the likes of Daniel Dimes and Cooper Rush. And if Justin Fields gets the better of him on Thursday night, it might be time for him to mix in an ep of the reinvention project and start thinking about another line of work. Because before you know it, thank you, Alvin, before you know it, Rivera will be channeling Jim Ursay and standing next to his jet, looking into his phone, and just flaming Wentz. Quarterback. My man, you better find a way to beat Justin Fields. You're already looking up at Cooper Rush. Waiting, Alvy. Thank you. It's understood, Alvy. I need to hear that every time I mention Cooper Rush. Because they both have earned it. The band and the guy. 
This message is sponsored by Discover. Did you know that you could reduce the number of unwanted calls and emails with online privacy protection, the latest innovation from Discover? Discover will help you remove your personal info, like your name and address, from 10 popular people search websites that can sell your data, and they will do it for free. Activate in the Discover app. See terms and learn more at discover.com slash online privacy protection. Ten, he's got a brand new book. In fact, it's out today. The Grandest Stage, A History of the World Series. We are joined by Tyler Kepner. Tyler, good to have you back. How are you? Great, Jim. How are you doing? Good, good. So, book release day is always an enormous day. Let me ask you this. I'm going to start right here. I can remember the first World Series game I ever went to. It was game one, 1974, Tyler. A's and Dodgers here in L.A. What about you? What was the first World Series game you ever went to? Uh, that was, well, that's great. That was a uh, that was a win by the A's, I think, in your in your, in your uh, game, right? Yeah, there you go. The Dodgers won game two. Uh, mine was uh, game four of the '83 World Series in Philadelphia, and uh, I was eight years old. I was a diehard Phillies fan, and they played the Orioles and they lost, and they lost the next day. I was there too, but I tell you what, as the years go on, it the losing doesn't matter, and it's just the experience of going to a World Series game, back when they were in the afternoon, I mean, it was a day game in the World Series. You're there, like, the the whole, you know, it, at the vet, it was 68,000 people on top of you. And just the idea that your team was was it. You know, everyone was looking at your ballpark. Um, you know, no neutral site. It was just, you know, the blimp overhead. It was something I think about, honestly, uh, all I still think about it pretty much every day. It was it was that big of an experience in my life. You know, I was going to say, it, it was like that. I mean, there was a time when baseball was our national pastime. And when you lay it out like that, I mean, when you think back to, and it's still a big deal right now, but when you think back to the way it used to be, how much, the World Series, how much of that was like the fabric of this country? How big was it back then? I really think it was, you know, and in talking to guys like, I mean, I, I, I reached back as far as I could talk to Carl Erskine, who is still with us. He's in his 90s, and, and he played for the Brooklyn Dodgers and played in those series in the late 40s and 50s. And, you know, he would he talked about how back then it was it was like, you know, bigger than the Kentucky Derby or any prize fight, uh, a Rose Bowl you could you could think of. Um, obviously, we've got the Super Bowl now, which is the king, and, uh, you know, the NBA Finals and everything. Um, but it is interesting how baseball, you know, baseball is so hugely popular on a local level. Um, but nationally it's still, uh, it's, it's really morphed into a local sport and it's strange. Like I got all kinds tons of friends at home, you know, Phillies fans, like they're texting updates, you know, all, all, all day long, you know, with the Phillies in the playoffs right now, but if they're not in the playoffs, they're not watching. So it's, it's strange that way. We're talking to Tyler Kepner. He's got a brand new book, The Grandest Stage, A History of the World Series. So, Tyler, having done the work, what would you rank, in your personal opinion, what is the greatest single World Series of all time? Well, having studied them all, um, I go in 1991, um, Braves and uh, Twins. That was the, the context of that was amazing. You had two teams that had been in last place the year before, so it was a worst-to-first World Series. Atlanta had never hosted the World Series. Um, you know, they'd been there a while, 25 years, and they hadn't done it. So their fans are going nuts. The Metrodome fans are going nuts. The home team wins every game. Um, you go back to the Metrodome for game six and seven, and you have Hall of Famers doing Hall of Fame things. You got Kirby Puckett walking it off in game six. You got Jack Morris with a 10 inning shutout, 10 inning shutout again in game seven. 
Um, every game was, I think game five was a blowout, but every other game was really tight. Um, that game, that series I remember watching when I was 16 and thinking, like, this is as good as it gets, man. This is, I, 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 I want to get to a point in my life where I am always going to do the World Series and never miss a game. And uh, <laughs> I haven't missed a game in uh, 21 years. There you go. Tyler Kepner joining us. You know, you talk about Hall of Famers doing Hall of Fame things like Kirby Puckett doing Kirby Puckett type things. How do you explain this? Like, you would expect the best of the best to be at their best on the biggest stage. And a lot of them were. But how do you explain, and you've got a chapter on this, some virtual unknowns. I don't want to say like anonymous players or randos, but some virtual unknowns doing the most unlikely things even on the biggest stage. Yeah, that's that's always a, a fun part of it because all these moments become so um, <clears throat> you know indelible for the fans and for the, the the people themselves. I remember talking to Jeff Blum, who was on the was on the White Sox. Really, he's he's a Astros broadcaster. He played a lot for the Astros, but he was with the with the White Sox just for a couple months at the end of the '05 series. He got one chance, one at bat in the World Series. He had a game winning home run in Game Three in extra innings. Um, and so you have guys, you know, guys like that. Uh, remember that uh, Kansas City World Series against the Mets where Christian Colon, he was one of those top picks along with uh, Hosmer and Moustakis and Gordon, but he never really made it. He made it just a little bit, just enough to be on the bench to get the go-ahead hit in extra innings to, to, in the clinching game in New York. You know, so guys like that, I, I love their stories because, uh, you know, at that, that, whatever else they do in their career, um, they've always got that. And they can always look back and say, when it mattered most, I was clutch. I came through. And Ty- I, I think that's a beautiful thing. It is. Tyler Kepner joining us. Excuse me. I was going to jump in and say, you know, we know the great moments. We know all the great classic moments. We know Kirk Gibson hit one of the most famous home runs in the history of the sport. But how many remember exactly what precipitated that moment? Only hardcore seam heads. For everybody else, why don't you remind them what happened before Gibson hit? Who hit and what happened? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um it's two outs, bases empty, um, Dodgers down by one, and Gibson's not the pinch hitter Tommy sends up to tie the game. Gibson's not – he's not even on deck yet. He puts up Mike Davis as a pinch hitter. So you won't, we won't even get to Gibson unless Mike Davis somehow gets on. Mike Davis hit 196 that year. He had been a free agent um, signing who didn't work out. He had hit 20-some home runs the previous year for Oakland, and that was key because the pitcher was Dennis Eckersley, and obviously he knew that Davis had had a bad year, but in Eckersley's mind, he remembers Mike Davis as the power hitter for Oakland, his teammate the year before. So he's pitching him real carefully. And now this is Dennis Eckersley, right? One of the best uh, control pitchers of all time. And he couldn't throw a strike. And so he walks Mike Davis and that's what brings up Kirk Gibson. And that's what brings up all the cinematic stuff uh, that happened after that. Mike Davis even stole a base during that at bat. And he's like, man, if I don't make it, you know, just bury me here at second base because Kirk Gibson's at the plate. But that actually helped Gibson, you know, calm down to have a guy in scoring position. He could think smaller, just just get a just get a base hit somewhere on this game's tied. But Eckersley faced 95 more batters, Romy, in his in his postseason career. Didn't walk anybody. <laughs> it's insane. Walked Mike Davis. That, that's an incredible Crazy. stat. A crazy stat. Tyler Kepner joining us. So Tyler, in doing your research, I guess we'll never really know. But did Babe Ruth? actually call his shot in 1932? Babe Ruth was responding to the dugout bench jockeying from the Cubs. They were all over him. They were calling him names. Um, they were yelling at him, screaming at him. It was obviously on the road at Wrigley Field. Hostile fans. He's holding up his fingers. He is holding. He's. I will give him this. He's saying, I'm going to do something here. I got one. I got one strike left. 
and you know, you only, it only takes one, right? I don't, I, I cannot believe that he pointed to the center field stands and said, "I'm going to hit it right there." He was there was so much jawing coming from the Cubs. He was yelling at them, holding out his hand like an umpire would, and saying, "You know, looking at the third base dugout and saying, I got one more, one more right here, and let's see." You know, so it was a showman. It was an act of showmanship, but it was not directed at the pitcher because if he had pointed at center field back in the day, I think even now, but especially back in the day, those dudes would have would have you know knocked him on his butt. I mean, Charlie Root. I, I, I sort of explored the the Babe Ruth called shot thing through the lens of Charlie Root, the pitcher who gave it up and. Uh, you know, he never lived it down. It, it really uh, stuck with him until he died. But this guy, he won more games than any pitcher in Cubs history. I mean, he's a good pitcher. Um, he wouldn't have taken that uh, lightly if the babe had taunted him effectively by pointing the center field seats. He was just trying to get on the uh, get on the bench bench guys, uh, get their goat. There you go, Tyler Kettner joining us. Let me ask you something. It's going to take me a moment. But, you know, I'm, I'm asking you this more as a fan than as a journalist. But you know, I'm kind of curious. When you think back to the great World Series moments, as an example, my childhood hero, Tyler, was Ron Say. I love the Penguin. I was a Dodger sure. fan growing up. I love the Penguin. So when I think of the World Series as a fan, I think of that 74 series, the first one I went to. But I think about my guy getting crowned by Goose Gossage, hitting the head, yeah. the ball ricochets away. And it's always interesting when you meet your heroes. When I finally met Ron Say, it was absolutely awesome. And we've had some great conversations since then. I'm curious, who was your guy when you were growing up, and what happened when you met that person? Well, my guys were Steve Carlton and Mike Schmidt. And, you know, Carlton was famous for never talking to the media. But um, I got to talk to him for my last book, um, my pitching book, and he was fantastic um, just talking about the slider. Basically, I appealed to him through some people I knew and said, I'm writing this book about the history of pitching, the history of the slider. I can't do it without the guy who threw the greatest slider ever. Um, and he knew it was, you know, he knew it was going to be a friendly interview. <laughs> I told him, Hey, you were my hero, dude. I just, I don't want to ask you about the slider. And he was great. He was terrific. Um, but for this book, it was Mike Schmidt. And, you know, I'd interviewed Schmidt over the years. He's, he's around the Phillies sometimes. Um, and, but this one was going to be a little different, Jim, because, you know, Mike Schmidt played in two World Series. We're talking the greatest third baseman of all time, um, MVP, all of it. Um, 1980, he's the MVP of the World Series. 1983, he goes one for 20 with a broken bat single. And you can just tell he's, he's in his own head. He's not himself. The, the team was not a great offensive team. They needed him, and he couldn't come through, and they lost in five to the Orioles. And I always wondered how a guy could be so, you know, quote-unquote clutch in one series and then three years later, same time of his career, um, just completely get inside his head. And he was really good, you know, talking about that just honestly and, and not hiding from it. And just how, just how messed up mentally he was um, for those five games in 83 and just how composed and calm he was in 80. You know, what, what, the, really, the thing that really stuck out in 80 what, that he did, he bunted. This is the greatest home run hitter of his era. He bunted twice against the Royals. He bunted in game three. He bunted in game four. So when he came up in the clutch in Game Five in the ninth inning, the Royals had had uh, you know George Brett playing in, and he smacked a hard ground ball past him for a single that started the big rally. So just putting that in the the Royals' heads um, enabled him to get the big hit in Game Five, and that comes from confidence and from just being in the moment and you know Schmidt was great talking about that he really was such great anecdotes this brand new book is called the grandest stage a history of the world series it is out today he is a new york times national baseball writer and has been since 2010 tyler kepner my guest tyler congrats on a great book always good to have you on the show thanks so much thanks jim i appreciate it anytime man
Tyler Kepner. All right, hope you enjoyed that. When we come back, hour number three, and as you might imagine, it is wide open. I couldn't get to it yesterday, but red ass v. thin skin went from the greatest coaching feud ever to a big, fat, nothing burger before Alabama and AM even got on the field Saturday night. But at least the game was better than the smack this week. The game was actually pretty great. In fact, Thin Skin nearly got over on the Nick Tater again. Can you imagine how pissed Nick would have been? This dude was about to get away with calling Saban a narcissist who thinks he's God and deserved to be smacked more as a child. He literally was about to get away with that. I mean, coming into that game, even without a starting quarterback, the thinking was, can you imagine the beatdown and the curb stomping Nick is going to lay on this guy after everything he said about him? Somebody should have slapped him. Somebody should have slapped him. He's a narcissist. He thinks he's God. I mean, they were 24-point favorites, and they weren't even healthy. Yet, he nearly got over. Thin skin came within one play of getting over. One play for one monumental upset for the Aggies. King to throw for it to the corner. Incomplete. Alabama survives at home. Survive is the key word. Like, if you're going to swing at red ass and then try to back it up with an epic upset on the final play, man, you got to at least call a final play that has a chance. Something, anything, something a little more imaginative than the one play and the one guy that we all knew was going to be targeted. Even Johnny freaking football came out to say that that final play sucked. Johnny Manziel, quote, one of the worst calls I have ever seen in my life. You have one play to beat the number one team in the country, and that's what we run? (laughs) When was the last time Johnny Football said or did something that we agreed with? But you can't argue that point. So Aggie fans got every right to be pissed. That final play was a disaster. And so was the smack. You see that awkward pregame handshake? between red ass and thin skin, these dudes had started and engaged in the most epic coaching feud ever. And then they ended it in the lamest way ever. And believe me, Aggie fan, Aggie fan remembers that it started with a totally unprovoked swing from the dictator himself. And m bought every player on their team, made a deal for name, image, and likeness. Right, we didn't buy one player. I mean, he starts that fight, and then Jimbo just loses his mind. And that's the way that ends? Go dig into his past. Man. It's ridiculous. How underwhelming. How disappointing. In fact, you get right down to it. Thin Skin v. Red Ass was flat out shown up by Dion and Eddie Robinson Jr. over the weekend. That's right. The most interesting college football beef from the weekend came not from Thin Skin v. Red Ass, but from the SWAC. After Jackson State beat Alabama State, Dion wanted to bro-hug it out with Robinson, and Robinson was not having any of that. Any of that. 
Not only was he not having any of that, the explanation that he shared after the fact was even better than that midfield Mutombo that he wagged at him. We didn't talk in the pregame. I was out there the whole time at the 50-yard line. He walked through our, our whole offensive, I mean, our whole huddle on, on our end zone and came a long way around to get to his side of the field in the pregame. Thought that wasn't classy at all. Uh, and so in the postgame, I'm not about to give you the Obama bro you know, I'm going to shake your hand and I'm going to go on. I'm, I'm going to always be respectful and respect the game. You know, you got the great guys, W.C. Gordon, Eddie G. Robinson, those guys, Reno Chasm. That's, I, I'm, I'm living on the shows of the swag. Uh, he ain't swag. You know, I'm swag. He ain't swag. So he's in the conference doing a great job. Can't knock that. Got a great team. Son should be up for the Heisman Trophy winner. I love Shadour. Great player. I love what he's doing for the conference. Uh, probably one of the best things we had since that Steve McNair when he was in there. Love all that, but you're not gonna come here and disrespect me and my team and my school and then want to grow up. Shake my hand and get the hell on. Period. You, uh, that is incredible. That is incredible. You can't come in here and try to bro hug me after you disrespect my school and me. You ain't swack. I'm swack. You shake my hand and you get the hell on. Shake my hand and get the hell on. Period. I mean, he's saying this about a Hall of Famer and a legend and a guy who's doing an amazing job and a guy who's being deified for everything he says and does. And Robinson's not having any of it. You don't come to my school and disrespect me and my players and the program and try to bro-hug me afterwards. You shake my hand and you get the hell on. He said that about Dion. Shake my hand and get the hell on. I mean, I want to say I'm not really sure where that's coming from, but he pretty much laid out where that's coming from. Now, that is some high-level coaching beef. This is what thin-skinned v. red-ass aspire to be. That's the kind of thing we were looking for from thin-skinned and red-ass. That was incredible. That's an incredible soundbite. I mean, the visual of him pushing Dion away is one thing. But then not... What I so respect about that is Robinson did not say, you know what, that's between me and him. He and I had a conversation. No. He explained exactly what that was about, and he had a conversation with everybody afterwards. Well, that swag. was incredible. Shake he ain't swack. Period. I don't even he know if that's swag. fair to say that Dion's not swack. I mean, Dion's done an amazing job. And I got to admit, I didn't think that he would. When they hired him, I thought that was kind of a joke. I'll own that. I did not think that he would do a very good job, and he has. He's done an amazing job, an amazing job of bringing recognition, visibility, recruiting, coaching, leading. Bruce Feldman came on the show recently and said that everybody he had spoken to that has worked with Dion was raving about his work ethic and what a great job he's done. And Dion has put himself in position to get a major, major opportunity. But I so respect Robinson saying, no, man, that's not what happened when he came on campus. That's not what happened when he walked on our field or walked on the field. Nothing but disrespect. So, no, I'm not going to bro hug that man. Shake my hand and move the hell on. You're not going to come here and disrespect me and my team and my school and then want to bro hug Shake my hand and get the hell on. Not move the hell on. Get the hell on. Period. Period. Now that's coaching beef. Dion was looking around like, dude, did that just happen? Did that guy just do me like that? The only thing missing from that was, you know who the hell I am? He does, Prime. He just doesn't care. In fact, he doesn't like you or respect you. I know it's Tuesday, but that was pretty amazing. 
He ain't swack. But this is prime, right? You didn't like his attitude or his demeanor when he was a player, but he was the greatest ever. I mean, we are talking about a guy that played in an NFL game and a Major League Baseball game on literally the same day. (laughs) I mean, crazy, crazy stuff. So in a way, both can be true. The guy can be extremely arrogant, maybe even disrespectful, and still do a great job. And he is doing a great job. But Robinson's saying, that's fine. You can do a great job. Just don't disrespect me, my players, and my program. And most of all, don't do all that and then try to bro-hug me. Shake my hand and get the hell on. Period. Steve in Vegas. It's good to have you, Steve. How are you? What's up? Hey, Jim. How you doing? Good, dude. How about you? Good. Listen, yeah, last minute of the game last night, not for nothing. I'm a big Raider fan. Glad they came to Vegas. But you've got 40-something seconds left, and you throw two deep balls. You need one yard. You've got two downs. You get the one, the one, you get the one yard. You're rushing the ball great all night. Get the one yard. Get the first down, and then work the deep ball. You still got 25, 30 seconds. Just a bad coaching move to throw them two deep balls, I think. I'm going for that one yard. I got a great running game going. We got 40-something seconds left. Get the one yard. You got two downs to get one yard. Then you work on the rest of it, you know? Just a bad coaching move, I think. I hear you, Steve. Now we're talking Raider fan coming up in here. JJ and KC. JJ, what's going on? How are you? Romy, my homie. How about those cheese? Yeah, that's right, buddy. I had to come off Twitter today to make this call. You know, the Raiders, they really were the best team for the first 17 points. Until Mahomes and um, Mr. Travis Kelsey remembered, they're untouchable, especially when they're going to have a four-touchdown night like that. A little memo to Tyree Kill. You miss us yet, or is it more fun getting blown out by the J-E-T-S Jets, Jets, Jets? You know, Matt in L.A. got that golden ticket yesterday, but we got the divisional W. Hey, Matthew, I will see you at the end of the year in Las Vegas as we take over that stadium and paint it red, my man, because the only people that are going to be there are you, the Raiderettes, those guys that put the Halloween decorations on their uniforms and all that stuff, and probably some craps dealers and some bartenders, because is that what the Raider players are tipping out in Vegas these days? Hey, guys, I know we don't have the greatest record in the world, but come see us. Come support us, my man. Yeah, give out those ducats and see what turns out for you all. We still the best. We still own this division, and we'll probably see you in the last game of the year. I'm out. Somehow, someway, he made it to the end of that phone call and got that plane down. Good night now! 